0: Paul is—he's closing this letter, and it's quite a long closing. Uh, And he begins chapter three by saying, "Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord." And he continues in verse one by saying, "To write you the same things is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you." Uh, This call to rejoice is apparently that important. I'm telling you again, rejoice. And I'm telling you because it brings you to safety in some sense. Admittedly, I think very few of us, when things aren't going so well, and they weren't going so well in the Philippian church, you know, very few of us want to be told to be cheerful, to put a smile on our faces, to focus on the good. The absolute last person that I want to walk through the door when I'm bummed out. Is Mr. Rogers singing, it's the style to wear a smile with all the piano runs and stuff. You remember that song? Major keys when what we want are sort of minor tunes to go along with how we're feeling. Don't get me wrong. I am glad when someone cheers me up. I just don't want to know that's what they're trying to do. (laughs) Fine for it. But before Mr. Rogers did his crooning and even before neurologists discovered that physically smiling for no reason actually can improve your mood, Paul understood that there is a tug of war going on in which we have some real agency. He's calling the Philippians to some real agency. We and they have a choice to tap into hope even when things are hard. It's certainly about more than smiling, but it's not about less than that, I don't think. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. Contend for joy. Pull back in this tug of war against the weight of your legitimate concerns and your real world challenges. Remember and rehearse what Jesus has given you, his very self. Unless we forget, Paul is writing this from prison. His future is uncertain. His Christianity does not seem to be working out for his good, at least by some measure. He has lost his former life's work. He's lost his reputation. He's lost his family, his community, and even his former sense of identity by putting his faith in Jesus. Just before our reading today, he basically says, I had it all. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless." but whatever i get, gain i had i counted as loss for the sake of christ i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that i may gain christ and he says he had plenty of reasons to ground his confidence in his high birth and in his hard work but he's actively embracing a new present and a new future now that israel's messiah has been revealed far differently than he imagined radically other than what he had imagined and even hoped for. And this reality has become the ground of his new life, a new zealous calling with a new understanding of what righteousness actually means and how righteousness is attained or received. But here's the thing. He's not glossing over the cost of letting go of the old version of reality. The reality to which he so zealously clung. There are real experiential losses. And he clearly knows how difficult it can be to make this kind of move. To let go of the old so that the new can come. It calls to mind some astronomy news that I heard this week. Some of you know, ever since NASA launched the Webb Space Telescope on Christmas Day of 2021, I have actually been loosely keeping up with like the photos and the findings and all that's going on there. And the Webb Telescope was launched proclaiming that we'll now be able to look so deep into space that we can observe the origins of the universe and the formation of stars and planets. The way that light works and travels, right? From millions of miles away. But last week, Web Telescope News was either a huge benefit or a huge bummer, depending on how you look at it. As they were looking at the nearby Orion Nebula, nearby, right? <laughs> uh, they discovered dozens, this, get this, they discovered dozens of pairs of never-before-seen celestial bodies, free-floating, Jupiter-sized objects unexplained by current theories of planet formation. This discovery has completely blown up their current theories of how stars and planets are formed. One astrophysicist put it this way, these objects should not exist. No, they shouldn't. Not if your widely held theories and frameworks are correct, which they're not. (laughs) And I'll be honest, I love when stuff like this happens to other people, not to me. (laughs) the scientists right who are all too ready to explain everything yet this is the 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 human predicament the universal human predicament isn't it we get interrupted paradigms shift out from under us it's a long journey and in paul's words we have not arrived we're not there yet not even the things that are certain in christ paul traded career and credibility to find himself in a roman jail cell with jesus this was not the plan but rejoice in the Lord, he tells him. Imitate me. It's what I'm doing. Let's press on. We're straining forward together even when it's clear that we are far from arriving. And he says in verse 12 that this transformation of his own life, this real union with Jesus and this new kind of righteousness received in a new way, it isn't complete. It isn't finished in its work. He hasn't obtained what he's pursuing yet. He hasn't even fully taken hold of what's taken hold of him. The losses and the setbacks in his life are clear, but he's learning to locate these setbacks and these losses, to see these things in the light of his union with Jesus. And he puts it this way, sharing in his sufferings. That's what he says in verse 10 before our reading today. And so I press on toward the goal, he says in verse 14. He's purposeful. Uh, purposefully putting behind him not only the things that haven't gone well or aren't going well to say the least but also his past achievements and you know his old sources of confidence to which anyone might be tempted to return so here he is he's in a frigid prison cell that was going to have him uh, as an aging man asking Timothy to bring the cloak that he left in Troas I mean these are just real-world problems in a prison but he's determined to fix his eyes on the prize Of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, he says. But don't let's not mistake what he means here. That's not esoteric. The upward call is not some escape to heaven or some just putting your mind on something that's, you know, some kind of faraway, one-day sort of reality. The upward call is the way in which the heavenly reality. It is already true. It shapes his earthly purpose and his calling right here, right now, in the messy middle, and yes, in prison. This is the source of his urgency, of his devotion, and yes, his joy in prison. So verses 15 and 16, they lay things pretty bare. This approach is what maturity looks like, he says. This is how we're meant to see it. Let those of us who are mature, he says, think this way. And if you think otherwise, God will update your thinking. This is not going to change. You're going to have to. Only let us hold true to what we have have attained. In other words, you've come a long way, and the truth is what got you here. It hasn't changed even if things look or feel different. Don't let the circumstances create spiritual amnesia because that's exactly what they can do. We all know that to be true. So verse 17 is an encouragement to guard actually the, the potential influences that can, can, can make it more difficult for us to continue to, to contend for, for joy, but also to think in the right way. It's an encouragement to guard their associations and their relationships, particularly those who influence their direction, influence their mindset. Paul says he is often in tears presumably because the people who have walked away and are now enemies of the cross are those that he knew and loved and maybe even led to faith. But now they're pulling on the other end of the rope in this tug of war like enemies of the cross. Because he knows what we know, right? That the struggle, let's be honest, it, it almost always begins and ends with our relationships, not just ideas. It begins with people. He knows how vulnerable we are to the example, uh, the influence of those who, who kind of you know, maybe flaunt a, a kind of temporary reprieve in returning to their old ways, the old ways of life. This is what's happening in Philippi. And Paul's point is, the Philippians and we with them, we really have a choice as to who will ultimately shape our self-understanding and our perceptions of the world around us. So it's not just about clinging to the right ideas, right? Or sort of assimilating the right ideology or mindset. It is about our connections. And I don't have to tell you that truth is a contested thing. And again, most of the time it's not us sitting around trying to figure out, is this true or is that true? It's about our experiential and relational reality informing these things. And, And lots of things look and sound truthy as they say, especially the things that appeal to the belly, in Paul's words. In other words, our urges and our impulses, the things that come easily. It's hard to shift our minds from earthly and bodily things. It's just hard to argue with desire. At least it is for me, especially when someone else parades their life of temporal gratification as so-called freedom. It's just how it often works. But for Paul, the truth and the urgency that he needs, that we need, it cannot be found in the powerful dictates of the immediate, of the belly, of, the, of just desires, and how we might sort of ratify those or justify those. It's found in the long view, in the view that we were made not only for time, but also for eternity. In our modern era, you know, there are a growing number, even among the church. Who treat the Christian faith like something to continually just interrogate under the influence of modern sensibilities. The modern belly, so to speak. Makes me think of Dr. Cuticle. Do you know who Dr. Cuticle is? In the Herman Melville novel, White Jacket. You probably have not read that. It's the one that came before Moby Dick. So on board the USS Neverthink... The ship's doctor, he rarely has, gets to deal with more than blisters, right? But one day a sailor with severe abdominal pain is diagnosed with appendicitis, and now he gets to remove an organ. He's eager to open him up. He's eager to remove the infected organ while showing off his expertise and his knowledge to the sailors who are eager to stand around and watch the surgery. And as he excitedly points out interesting anatomical details in the abdomen to the men who've never seen on the insides of a man, the enthusiastic doctor, now sewing up his patient, is the last to realize that his patient is long dead. And so it is with the Word of God for all the benefits of our endless resources in the modern era and a historical, critical approach to the gospel, which is important. It helps us make better sense of context and culture and genre. The truth is the pendulum has swung so far that the word of life to which Paul is telling the Philippians to hold fast earlier in this letter, it's now ham-handedly dissected under a sterile and suspicious light. As if we know better. As if we can see that far into space. No wonder so many quarters of the church in America are dying. The scriptures have been long dead on their tables, serving the ends of their humanistic so-called expertise, our bellies. So let's just come full circle. Paul's call to rejoice. This is not some sentimental positivity or idealism. He is telling them and he's telling us that you must choose to orient your body and your mind to what you've come to believe is true and, in fact, inevitable. Even when it doesn't feel like it used to or like we think it should. Because the race is long. We know we haven't arrived. We feel that we haven't arrived And when discouragement that will inevitably come pulls hard on you, he's saying pull harder in the other direction. Rejoice in the Lord. And in a sense, this is the point of everything we do together as a church. We're retelling the history and the destiny of a world redeemed from evil and death, a world that we cannot fix by ourselves as hard as we try or as wide as we smile. We can't do it. We're witnessing as the church to that history, that destiny, In the way we, you and I, Village Church, the way we orient our bodies and minds, the way we approach our relationships and our politics and the way we spend our time and money, the way we view the comings and the goings of the constant, the perennial societal confusion that the church finds herself in. Not just now, always. And this is what Paul means in verse 20 when he says, our citizenship is in heaven. He clearly does not mean that we're just supposed to grit our teeth and wait for a one day far away heaven as our destiny. He means that we're already indelibly connected to, we're already identified by our relationship to Jesus. We already belong to the kingdom of heaven as it spreads through us to the kingdoms of men in our time, in our society, and in our circles. Sure, the Philippians, many of them with their proud Roman military backgrounds, they are citizens of the empire. And you know what? Paul is too. He happens to be a citizen of Rome too. But it's not ultimate. It's not fundamental to true identity. It's not the path. It's not the destination. It can't be. Even if it promises to buffer us, to buffer them from the losses, or it promises to shorten the long journey. A few years back, I was introduced uh, to the idea that the health of any given church at any given time could be understood in terms of its levels of urgency or anxiety. How much of each are present in any congregation at any time? Let me unpack that just a little bit. When there are difficulties, and we've had ours, when there are conflicts, and we've had them, when there are losses, anxiety inevitably increases we all know that, not just in the church, in the home, in the workplace. Many, if not most of us, have experienced this heightening anxiety in a church when things aren't going well. We also know that changes in a church have a way of producing, I mean, that the, when something changes itself, it just produces anxiety. But as one of my mentors used to say, people aren't afraid of change. Not really. They're afraid of loss. Change, even when it brings some benefits, also includes some loss. So heightened anxiety, but also, on the other hand, when good stuff is happening, problems are being solved, when there are clear opportunities, when there are fruitful outcomes, urgency increases, and it can crowd out the anxiety. It keeps motivation higher. Another way to think of urgency maybe is purposeful motivation. And they're always in this sort of relationship, even a kind of tug of war. Does this make sense? As many of you know, I work with church planners in our diocese, and the early going of a church plant is always pretty high in urgency, purposeful motivation, a tangible sense of calling. People are excited. The goal is clear. There's energy and even idealism. You're putting out the chairs, and you're so excited for all the new people that are going to come. Every new person you add is a huge win, and it can make your Sunday, it can make everybody's Sunday. But it doesn't take long for something to stir up anxiety. The enthusiastic people who jumped in initially, they've already invited all their friends. And only a few of them came. You've been setting up those chairs in the gym for a year and a half and haven't seen a new family in three months. I mean, this is real world stuff for them. I talk to them all the time. Anxiety goes up, urgency goes down family burns out, and they say they just need a real church in this season. And the plant is left to figure out how to move forward through the discouragement. How do you get the urgency back? Can you? But Here's the thing, and I'm about to close. I think that what Paul is telling us is that urgency doesn't primarily depend on things always going right. Because it can't. It depends on getting our hearts and our minds right, which includes, hear me, it includes the hardships, embracing them, the changes and the challenges as an actual part of what it means to be a community of purposeful motivation, of urgency. As Paul emphasized in chapter 2, when our minds align with a Jesus who emphasized him or, who, you know, he emphasized this, this Jesus who emptied himself for love. And, and when we actually put his example at the center of our personal and our collective imaginations, even the hardships can look different to us. They feel as they are meant to, like a meaningful connection to Jesus, to one another. So not surprisingly, this is really what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. This fledgling church is in danger of their urgency giving way to anxiety. People aren't getting along. They're understandably discouraged by the losses, and they're confused about their allegiances. One thing feeds the other. But Paul reminds them to join him in keeping their eyes on prize. It's a long journey. It's a long obedience. The distractions are many. The setbacks are real. Our bodies are unruly. But he says Jesus will indeed transform these lowly bodies, these lives, like the body he had, to be like the glorious body he now has, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And some of you probably need to say to yourselves right now all things. All things. Together, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the lord i'm just here to tell you what paul said because i believe it's what the lord told paul to tell his people rejoice in the lord press on trusting that jesus will in due time he'll bring the the life and the rule of heaven to bear on the whole world through us do you believe it lord we're asking you to help us to believe it um we thank you, Jesus, that you took on a body like ours. And we thank you that you're going to give us a body like yours. Give us a life above the fray. But for now, be with us through the fray. And we will trust you. Lord, help us to trust you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.